Rockers. Welcome to Hoosier Illusion, hosted by me, Neil Tafflinger, and Ryan J. Downey, two grown-up hardcore punks, longtime journalists, and longtime friends born and bred in Indianapolis, Indiana. After growing apart, we're reuniting to talk about who we were, who we are, and where we're going. Follow along as we navigate the rugged terrain of our mental landscapes, littered with pop culture, subculture, and the odd reference to Johnny Ringo, James Dean, Axl Rose, and other notable Hoosiers. Welcome back to Hoosier Illusion, Ryan. Oh, hey. Welcome back yourself, Neil. <laughs> what do you want to talk about tonight? Oh, I think we should talk about white supremacy and <laughs> white identity and not in the way that <laughs> puts in people recoiling in fear from this podcast. Yeah. For, yeah. From uh, the from in, the anti-perspective. Let me just yeah, point that out. From, from the perspective that most people wouldn't expect two middle-aged white guys to take. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So... That was something, uh, I guess, early on in our friendship that we had in common, uh, which I guess was, I thought was typical of the punk scene, but really wasn't uh, universally, was Indianapolis's sort of general, generally progressive leaning uh, towards everything. And it was sort of assumed that sort of an anti-racist posture was assumed, but it wasn't and most of us until you know later in the 90s didn't really have a sophisticated analysis of race and and whiteness and white supremacy so i know how i got to mine and we we had you know uh our intersection you know late in the 90s with some mutual friends in chicago but how how did you come to your position i guess what is your position what is your understanding of race in America, your whiteness, what it means, and how did you get there from where you started? You know, I grew up in a blue-collar, predominantly white area of Indianapolis, uh, low-income housing, sort of suburbs adjacent. A working-class suburb? We yeah. call it that? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I wasn't, really, I, I wasn't really in the suburbs during the early part of my childhood. It was, you know, it was literally like low-income apartment. Yeah, homes behind other low-income apartments, and then and and eventually, uh, by the time I was getting into high school, you know, my family unit had worked itself up into the lower middle class enough to you know purchase a home on a cul-de-sac and you know a modest one story, as I was reminded by other members of the Indianapolis hardcore scene <laughs> who came from a more well-to-do area. Oof. But uh, <laughs> the second time that's come up, we'll, we'll talk later about the class divisions in the hardcore scene. Indeed. Deep cut. But yeah, my, so my core group of friends early on, you know, in elementary school, uh, one of the reasons why I probably giggled when uh, the idea of Stranger Things about four best friends, one of whom is African-American in the 80s in, Indianapolis, in Indiana, 
because uh, that was very... Yeah, not, not Indianapolis, not Fort Wayne, not Gary. Yeah. Semi-rural, exurban Indiana. But yeah, it was, it was quite analogous to my own actual life experience in that, um, you know, in my friend group, we had uh, the black friend. So it was never, you know, my interaction with people of color... It wasn't fetishized or romanticized, nor was it, you know, was there any real sort of prejudice entering into the equation that I can remember. Now, in elementary school around second or third grade, and I found out since living in California that this is a foreign concept to a lot of folks, but uh, we had, you know, forced integration via busing. I used the phrase busing around some Californians and they didn't know what I was talking about. And I think it's a little bit of a generational thing too. But for those who don't know, you know, essentially what it was uh, were in order to guarantee a certain percentage of black kids in our predominantly white elementary school. uh, And this continued through middle school and high school students were bussed in long distances from other parts of town that were predominantly made up of African-Americans. So it's, it's worth noting here that Indianapolis's very form of government is a compromise as a result of resistance to school integration. Oh, wow. I see. I was not aware of that. In fact, we'll we'll drop a link to, to resources in the notes. That's why Unigov exists uh, for all of its, strengths and weaknesses and pros and cons it was pretty positive for me and my experience in terms of getting to know and relating to a diverse a more diverse group of people than i would have otherwise in that public school system um and that uh particularly manifested itself in high school and so on so i would say that much like many things it was punk rock and hardcore that radicalized me when it came to uh, race issues and uh, the associated politics, you know, what, what people would term identity politics now were just part of the conversation in the more progressive end of the punk rock and hardcore subculture as well as in the more right wing end of it. You know, this was, I was coming into the scene at a time when there were still Nazi skinheads who were, participating in punk and hardcore music and eventually were uh, banished uh, usually with violence and yeah, not, not even their own se- segregated, no pun, well, pun intended scene, <laughs> yeah. but just like actively a part of the broader scene. Yeah, indeed. Uh, so that probably was my first real world experience with radical politics and activism even prior to animal rights activism. Now I was a vegetarian as we will discuss in a later episode of Hoosier illusion. Um, But uh, I wasn't, uh, you know, an activist about it. I was the first thing I was ever an activist about was racial equality. And that was driven by, you know, things I was hearing in the music I was listening to and books I was reading and fanzines and so on. And I became fascinated, so I guess somewhat briefly, but these these kind of identity, these identities that you try on as a young adult and as a teenager, you know, can feel like a lifetime when they're actually a 
just a little snippet, you know, in this case, probably less than a year. But there was a moment where I was really fascinated by skinhead culture. And, you know, maybe it's the ultimate contrarian in me that roots for the underdog and, and goes against the grain. But this was a period where Nazi skinheads were becoming a, a cultural flashpoint and were being discussed quite a bit. And, you know, the infamous uh, Geraldo and Morton Downey Jr. talk show appearances and so on. And, and skinhead at that point to really anyone outside of the punk scene, especially somewhere as isolated as Indiana, skinhead was synonymous with racist, with white supremacists, with Nazi. And my experience in the punk scene had taught me all about the actual origins of skinhead culture and, you know, Jamaican immigrants uh, showing up in working class parts of England and, you know, ska and reggae music and, and oi and all this stuff that developed out of it and how it, at, you know, at its worst, initially, the skinhead thing was apolitical and at its best was pretty progressive when it came to working class ideas. And, and particularly, you know, it was it was started by dark skinned immigrants to the United Kingdom in a real intermingling of different types of people. It was then, you know, later co-opted by groups like the Nationalist Front and, you know, white supremacist groups who saw these uh, well-dressed, cool-looking counterculture, you know, fringe of society skinheads. It's tragically comedic that black culture is so compelling and fascinating to white people that even hardened racists will co-opt black culture. Right. I mean, when you think, when you think about it, that was some full on cultural appropriation of white supremacists appropriating what was initially black immigrant skinhead culture. So I, 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 black immigrants get out, leave your boots, braces, jeans, shirts, <laughs> yeah. and awesome music. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's it's funny seeing the new alt right trying to co op Fred Perry polos once again. It's like no, you you can't have those. No, but uh, no, I I want those back. <laughs> it, it's important also that it, it didn't the white supremacist skinheads didn't replace the initial skinheads. What happened is they all existed, um, and in some rare instances you would get these uh, unaffiliated apolitical skinheads who would say a skinhead is a skinhead and they would hang out with a black skinhead or a Nazi skinhead just as easily. And I think that more often than not, those were people who were probably closet Nazi sympathizers. Um, and then what you ended up yeah. with more and more and around the time that I was getting into punk and hardcore is you started having violent resistance within the skinhead scene to the Nazi skinheads. Are we talking about anti-racist action? Uh, we're talking about anti-racist action, and we're talking about sharps, skinheads against racial prejudice. I forgot and, about sharps. And, you know, the nonviolent types would complain that sharp skins and the ARA were just as violent as Nazis. It's just that their violence was directed towards the Nazis. But, and my response is, so? Yeah, I mean, you can't... Um, you really can't discount or deny the fact that that strategy was by and large successful in chasing Nazi skinheads out of the punk scene, um, making punk shows and a non-safe space for skinheads of, of the Nazi an variety. unsafe space, as it were. Yeah, and, um, and just, yeah, uh, literally chasing them out and making it to where it was too difficult for them to show up. 
so uh, my friend Dave Rogers and I, uh, who was you know one of my close friends all through elementary, middle, and high school, uh, our freshman year in high school, we both became skinheads. And again, I should point out of the non-racist variety. <laughs> and uh, there's an interesting racial component to this story because, you know, we start showing up to high school in boots and braces and shaved heads and, uh, you know, agnostic front T-shirts and, and whatnot and bomber jackets. And there were immediately rumors flying all around our high school that we were Nazis. And what's interesting about that is no white person ever confronted us about it. Uh, there was, there was one, one kid who approached my friend Dave, uh, when I wasn't around one afternoon and said, Hey man, I just want to let you know, like you skinheads, like I'm down with what you guys are into. If anything ever pops off here at school, I got your back. And it was like, one of those like, uh, no, <laughs> Another interesting thing about how, uh, especially in pre-social media days, how rumors and things spread around schools, there were two of us in our high school, and yet within uh, just a short couple of weeks, the perception was there was this large skinhead faction in our oh, school. Oh, that's an, that's an outbreak. Yeah, I mean, it was it, – it, no, I don't think anyone actually counted us. You know, it was, just, <laughs> it was literally people were talking like there's a bunch of skinheads in our school now. So – Here's what's interesting about, you know, the real world versus the hypothetical world. Dave and I are sitting with some of our metalhead and punk friends at the lunch table, having lunch, and one by one, um, each of our friends gets up and goes to their respective classes, and then eventually it's just Dave and I, and then Dave has to go to class, and then it's just me sitting at this large lunch table that seats probably a dozen people by myself finishing my lunch. So I'm sitting there, and, uh, you know, I'm a freshman, and this large African-American gentleman who uh, I believe was a senior at the time sits down directly in front of me silently. And one by one, each of those dozen seats at that table are filled by black gangbangers at my school. <laughs> All silently. That's such an awesome flex. I mean, it, yeah. And it's literally, it's like a scripted scene from some sort of eighties comedy or, or teen drama or something. I mean, one, one by one, they each sat down without saying a word. And so I, you know, as fake calmly as I could, just continued finishing my lunch. And finally, the guy in front of me, who I, who I later learned was the leader of the faction of said street gang that was prevalent in my school, uh, he, he, uh, this guy named Rob, he, he's the first to speak, and he just looks at me and he says, so... Are you a racist? And I remember saying no. And then I couldn't tell you exactly what I said, but I remember fast talking through every imaginable thing about what skinheads were, what they weren't, <laughs> about fighting Nazis at punk shows, about anti-racist action, which I had seen at that point on, on local access TV, but had yet to have any real experience with. And, uh, you know, on and on and on. And I believe at one point I even said skinheads, real skinheads were about fighting crime. <laughs> so one, one, one thing that always stands out to me about that. At the end of the conversation, and no one else spoke, just the one guy, everyone else sat there quietly. I'm trying to imagine freshman in high school, Ryan. Like, in my head, I'm seeing you now doing this <laughs> yeah. at a table in a high school cafeteria. 
but it's 15-year-old Ryan Downey. Indeed. Pimply face, shaved head, agnostic front t-shirt. So good. Braces, um, you know, all of all of 130 pounds. It, it was only this guy, Rob, who spoke. Everyone else sat there in silence, and he listened to everything I had to say and nodded and smiled a couple of times. And then when I finally, you know, ran out of breath or whatever point I felt like I should stop talking, he uh, nods his head at me one more time and he says, we're good, and stands up. And as soon as he stands up, the rest of them stand up and they all filed away. <laughs> and I heard through the grapevine um, that, <laughs> and again, I mean, it, it's high school, <laughs> it's the late 80s, there's no, there's no way to sugarcoat it. I mean, these were hardcore gangbanger dudes. And word was passed to us over in subsequent days that we were now under the protection of this particular gang. There were a few different gangs at our school, and this was definitely the meanest and baddest and biggest. Did you go to high school at Southport or yeah. at the State Pen? <laughs> Southport, same thing. There was there was a huge there was a huge gang fight slash riot on the first day of school one year, my sophomore year maybe that Matt Reese and I still joke about from time to time where someone it actually happened in that same cafeteria and someone turned out all the lights and then people just started fighting yeah it's pretty gnarly but uh yeah we enjoyed the protection of said crew that basically sent word around that we weren't nazis and we were in fact friendlies and um <laughs> to leave you us were allies allies early allies and not to not to beat us up and to leave us be the only other real interaction slash altercation that came of that was on, I believe, the last day of school. I wore a red bandana, um, suicidal tendency style, um, <laughs> as, as a uh, as a punk rock move. Like the the gang association, even with suicidal tendencies, was the furthest thing from my mind. And I'm I need a. I need a freshman year Ryan Downey lookbook. I wish. Um, <laughs> and I, re I remember I was putting books in my locker. I had this bandana on. And this guy, Johnny, who was kind of the lieutenant in the part of the gang that went to our school. Uh, that, that guy, Rob, had since left the school under dubious circumstances and cover of <laughs> night, one might say. <laughs> he had been asked to leave. This guy, Johnny, and three or four of his friends surround me at my locker Johnny grabs the red do-rag uh, from my forehead and pulls it down to my throat and chokes me with it for a few seconds and then lets go and they all shuffle off. And I'm left standing there going like, well, what the fuck just happened? What was that? And blah, 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 blah. Well, I had a class with this Johnny dude. So an art class. And <laughs> later in art class, um, you know, the first thing I said to him now, all of his buddies aren't around. I'm like, what the fuck was that this morning? Like what? I thought we were cool. I thought, and he, and he said, yeah, I, we are cool. That's why if you're going to wear one of those to school, it should be the right color. Oh, right. You guys are like a blue gang. <laughs> Sorry. Like, like, like legit faux pas. And, and total unintended faux pas at that. But uh, yeah, from that point forward for the rest of high school, anytime I wore anything that could be interpreted as gang affiliated, it was certainly blue and never red. Which is funny because I love the game now as an adult. 
and the game <laughs> the game is just constantly blooding. But uh yeah, so that's so it was around that same time, oddly enough, and this is a very bizarre Southport, Indiana thing too. I think it was Reese actually who found it. There were flyers put up around an apartment complex with a hand-drawn fist that said F-I-S-T on the knuckles and said freedom and standing together. And then it said um, anti-racist skinheads. And then it had little pull, little tear-off things at the bottom like a babysitter flyer or something with, <laughs> with a phone number on it. And the name of the guy on, whose phone number it was was Merlin. So, of course, <laughs> this is just bizarre AF on every possible level. And these, he's these, just out there casting his spells. Yeah, and he's just out there. Uh, oh, wait till I tell you why his name was Merlin. Um, and he, he's, he, yeah, he was out there stapling flyers to trees in this random apartment complex. You know what? There was a phone number and there was an address. And so Reese and I just showed up to his apartment and I came in full anti-racist skinhead regalia and Reese who didn't have a shaved head nevertheless dressed basically like a skinhead and put his tuft of hair under a hat and we uh <laughs> knocked on this door and this you know 19 or 20 year old high school dropout which when you're 14 or 15 may as well be 40 yeah. um answers the door to this darkened apartment and yeah there's a much like every skinhead movie you've ever seen there's these scraggly gnarly skinheads just hanging around in this living room drinking beer and uh being skinheads and um they welcomed us in and they were as they were as surprised that we existed in the general vicinity as we were that they did and um because before the internet anti-racist skins could live in the same apartment complex <laughs> totally and not know that they the others existed yeah and we basically did i mean this apartment complex was like a couple blocks from where reese and i both lived so, yeah, they kind of sized us up and, you know, checked our relative skinhead bona fides, like by asking us a series of questions about different things just to kind of see if we knew our stuff. And then they invited us to a, there was supposed to be a KKK rally in downtown Indianapolis. And there was a counter protest that was being organized by a, a couple of different groups together with one another and fist Freedom and Standing Together, the anti-racist skinhead group in the south side of Indianapolis wanted to make a present, their presence there known. So they invited us to that. And, uh, yeah, we came. I think Dave Rogers might have come with us also. And there's, you know, I don't know, seven or eight of us fist skinheads marching in this anti-KKK march, which, um, you Fisting know. Fisting the KKK, uh, as it were. Yeah, you know, I, I went to so many counter-protests for against the KKK, which when the KKK did show up, it would usually be three or four people and then surrounded by a bunch of barricades and police protecting them. And then always, you know, anywhere from five to 10 times as many counter protesters, but just as many times as I remember that happening, I remember the KKK part of it never even materializing. So it's like the KKK is going to have a rally downtown at this place at this time on this day and then all of us counter protesters show up and the kkk just is never there um <laughs> i don't remember this first time if that was one of those but um yeah so i got to know merlin a little bit and uh turns out he was called merlin because when him and his friends used to drop acid he would do magic tricks <laughs> and they all started calling him merlin 
Merlin ended up being uh, on the hit list, so to speak, of the most violent of the Midwest Nazi skinheads. And in part, I think, to escape that, and who knows what other reasons, uh, he joined the Marines at one point. I think he went AWOL from the Marines. I remember him, you know, he was a dude who kind of came in and out of my life um, a few times. But uh, I, one thing I will always remember about Merlin, and this is kind of off topic, but uh, but it's fun, was going to his house at one point when he was home, I think, from the Marines and living living with his dad. And my friends and I, uh, Keith Steele, the drummer of Hardball, and Dave Rogers and myself going into this house. It's the middle of the afternoon. It's totally dark. Merlin's dad is sitting playing old school Nintendo, and he is wearing cutoff jean shorts, no shirt, no socks, surrounded by beer cans and ashtrays. And as we walk in, Keith Steele, being the older and more boisterous of our little crew, says, How's it going? And I just remember this guy saying, It's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out uh, Merlin's dad was a Vietnam vet. Whether or not this story was true, the story that Merlin told us was he was supposed to have his leg amputated while he was over there in the shit. And just prior to the actual amputation going down, he violently resisted and refused having it chopped off. And somehow it got recorded in the paperwork that his leg had been amputated. It wasn't, and it was more or less inoperable, but didn't kill him. And, you know, he lived the rest of his life with that leg still attached. And according to Merlin, because, you know, the records showed him as being an amputee, he lived on you know, government amputee veteran disability money. <laughs> so like, was he discharged? Yeah. So, but being so, an amputee? I mean, and, and who knows, you know, the kind of myths, right. myths that get told, but the story was that he was, you know, that the government thought he had one leg, but he actually had two. And it was important to protect that secret at all costs because he was get <laughs> getting money, getting money for being an amputee. I don't care if it's even true. It's a good story. It's a good story. So, yeah, so those were some of my early experiences, you know, at punk and hardcore shows that would often turn violent, you know, fighting against Nazi skinheads. The actual skinhead part of that phase was, was I'm sure, less than a year and, and pretty brief and uneventful, aside from the couple of little anecdotes I just gave you. But it did, you know, broaden my perspective. And then when I met people who were part of the Indianapolis anti-racist action, um, a girl who introduced me to a bunch of ska and two-tone music and rumor had it moved to some other city and married a Nazi. But uh, it was always weird the, the way that those scenes overlapped. I mean, you would also hear tales of black Nazis. You know, there was, a, <laughs> that's a whole other uh, can of worms to go into. But um, there were bizarre blurring of the lines and overlaps. But, but yeah, I was, um, you know, passing out literature for ARA and wearing the ARA t-shirt and yeah, you know, in its defense, it was a pretty radical thing to be doings about that time. So fast forwarding quite a bit, um, as a, you know, my late teens, early twenties is when I discovered, you know, people's history of the United States by Howard Zinn. I think I was about 20 years old when that became something of a political Bible for me. And, you know, uh, basically that book bills itself as the photo negative to the history that we're presented as written by the conquerors 
these are the other stories as written by the conquered, you know, from the point of view of anyone, anything, you know, anyone from American Indians to um, immigrants and so forth. And I also began to understand around that age, thanks in some small part to my love of House of Pain, which can persist to this day. <laughs> Uh, but also, but but chiefly, you know, people's history, and and later on, uh, the Noel Ignatiev book, which I think is going to dovetail pretty nicely in wrapping up this segment, uh, the Noel Ignatiev book, how the Irish became white. I started to really understand how the experience of my ethnic group subset uh, was more complex than I would have guessed, given that I was of a generation where uh, Irish immigrants in America had fully assimilated into the overarching white culture and reading about, you know, some of these notions like uh, the fact that a lot of Irish immigrants became cops because it gave them a leg up over all the other immigrants who were being discriminated against. And, you know, that's a whole, that's a whole thing. But um, it was that same author who wrote how the Irish became white, who came up with this idea of abolishing the white race of being a race trader um, talked a lot about, uh, whiteness as a social construct, uh, you know, created to justify the exploitation and murder of, of others. And, you know, a lot of very radical ideas that, um, you know, by the time identity politics rolled around, almost felt passe to people like us, I think, uh, yeah. you know, welcome aboard, much like veganism, much like a, a whole bunch of other, other things. Um, <laughs> hip hop, heavy I'm music. I'm glad you've caught up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's the, I guess, very truncated version of some of my experiences. And certainly I have to give a lot of credit to hip hop music and culture, uh, nationally and locally with broadening my horizons quite a bit. I was 14 years old and I knew the difference between Sufis, Sunnis, Shias, and five percenters, <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, um, <laughs> I knew, I knew about the he Hebrew Israelites. I understood the various factions of the black Panthers. I, you, you know, had secret knowledge, I had secret knowledge. Um, and it was, you know, oftentimes that secret knowledge was currency in certain conversations and plenty of times it, it, it created some uncomfortable situations like, lining up to see the Mario Van Peebles Panther movie and the only theater where it was playing in Indianapolis, which was in a black neighborhood and being literally the only white person in line and that creating uh, some conflict with some of the folks in line who didn't feel that I had a place at that showing and through the sort of faith journey as well, uh, you know, growing up, going to a white Protestant church, and also having some experience uh, with the Catholic Church. And then as a teenager, kind of finding my own way and, and ending up in situations, whether it's, you know, secret knowledge through the hardcore scene, whether it's Hare Krishna temples, whether it's learning about reggae and ital via the bad brains, uh, and all, all these variety of a more diverse religious experience that, uh, you know, and certainly Islam and the connection that I had to hip hop at the time, those were all. Uh, religions that were populated by non-white people. And so vis-a-vis -vis learning about Hinduism, I, you know, had a bunch of Indian people in my life and, and so on. So, yeah, I think that brings us up somewhere to where we would have met and I would have been in my post Howard's in uh, aware of this race trader concept and meeting the actual members of the band race trader era.
Sweet. So why don't we take a break and when we come back, I will go back to the beginning of my journey and we will come back to that intersection and be intersectional. Oh, I see what you did there. <laughs> Okay, so if we are going to go back to, I guess, my awakening to white supremacy, white privilege, uh, my identity as a white man in this culture, and the implications of it, I would say there, there are two things that, that are the, the starting point, and they're starting points and through lines. One ironically, is the private school that I went to from kindergarten through my sophomore year. I also grew up in an almost exclusively white but middle-class neighborhood uh, that we talked about in the first season, Broderpool. But I went to a private school on the other side of the White River from where I lived. And contrary to a lot of the assumptions people have about private schools, it was remarkably diverse for the 80s in Indiana, even while barely having any black or African-American students. And what I mean is I went to school with kids who's, who were of South Asian ethnicity, uh, East Asian I went to school with Muslims. I went to school with Arab Muslims and black Muslims. I went to school with kids who spoke English as a second language because their parents were international executives for locally headquartered companies. I went to school with Jewish kids, which were, you know, few and far between in the state of Indiana back then. Um, but it, it so happened that I lived in the section of the city where the highest concentration of Jewish families in Marion County was. So in its own way, I was exposed to a very diverse group of people early and without realizing it until later, I couldn't articulate it until adulthood. But what I learned is that based on my experience in school with this group of people and in my personal life and through later on my dad's work as a public school teacher, I realized that in America, the key difference between people wasn't race and ethnicity. It was class and access to resources. Like when you're rich, in fundamental ways, you're kind of all the same. That's a gross overstatement. But, you know, class is a, a much bigger uh, determinant of success or failure, so to speak, than any sort of inherent uh race characteristics, you know, the sort of bullshit that people still grow up with about how certain kinds of people are one way and certain kinds of people are another way. The other starting point and through line was that my dad was always really interested in indigenous people in America. So not just the history of the people who were here first, but also their lives in the present day and why they were that way. So when I was a kid, I was exposed to sort of movies and pop culture that were kind of 
secret knowledge in underground back then. Like, I don't know how many elementary school kids sat around with their dad in central Indiana and watched a wobbly VHS copy of the movie Pow Wow Highway and learned, you know, like reservation lingo and got, you know, a snapshot, even, even, you know, a mediated snapshot, but a snapshot of what a contemporary uh, indigenous person's life was in the 1980s, um, which then led me at a relatively early age to start reading not only histories, but like, but contemporary fiction. So I'm reading in, you know, junior high, early high school, I'm reading Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee and also The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven. I guess from, from elementary school on, I had this sense that I had like a, you know, a little kid's understanding of class versus race. And then I also had this, this adjacent perspective that there was an entire class of people in this country who had been royally fucked and were continuing to be royally fucked on an ongoing basis as a result of their culture, their ethnicity, their racial identity, uh, their culture. We They had something we wanted, we took it, and then whether out of guilt or convenience, we just put our foot on their throat and kept it there for several hundred years. That all was still, you know, percolating through an unsophisticated, like, racism is bad perspective until I was probably 13, uh, which is when I encountered, I don't know, within two years, I went from, like, listening to generic hard rock, whatever, to listening to relatively true and cult heavy music but in between was this guns and roses public enemy metallica phase and as much as people in music scenes decry mass marketing mass commercialization of radical ideas to have chuck d talking into my head through earbuds when I'm 13 or 14 had a profound effect on my view of America and my view of myself and my place in it and how my existence affects others. Absolutely. Uh, and and I, would, I would throw in there only because it reminded me that I neglected to mention, and I know I mentioned hip hop, but a public enemy in particular, and for me even more so, Boogie Down Productions and KRS-One, that was just so transformative and important. And if it wasn't for Yo! MTV Raps, I would have never been exposed to, like, X-Clan. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think one of our first conversations, like, we hit on a shared love of Public Enemy, and which quickly led you to start talking about KRS-One. Yeah, like, like it did just a, now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which it remains a, a, a feature of our conversations to this day. So, you know, like, I, I was already not only with hardcore, but just like my general, my general consciousness and, and political view by the time I'm 13, 14 is so vastly different than most of the people I'm coming in contact with that it, it adds to my sense of alienation because I'm like, I'm hip to shit that other people aren't talking about or aren't thinking about, but I'm also not, 
hit, I don't know where to go where other people believe this stuff or think this stuff. You know, I definitely am not going to be welcomed into any any cipher where people are talking about black consciousness and culture and nationalism. Like, so I'm just sort of on this island where I'm this weird white kid at a private school who has all this stuff swirling in his head about, you know, Leonard Peltier and Mumbia Abu Jamal and whether or not Farrakhan's a prophet and whether or not we should listen to him. Uh, <laughs> you know, all, all this stuff that you're trying to sort out, when you when you get exposed to things uh when you're young so i guess that all primed me to to be ready you know like middle of high school i've you know i've already read autobiography of malcolm x i've already read last speeches i've already read yeah you know letter from birmingham jail i've already read all the the canon of stuff but i'm still not really fully aware of the implications of white supremacy. So being exposed to race trader, and I was, I've even said this to them. I was always a bigger fan of their perspective than their songs. So I guess background, we should probably talk about what race trader is, right? So there's, there's the race trader journal, this, I guess, quasi academic journal about white supremacy. And like you said, the, the publisher, editor of it was Nolik Natyev, who maybe coined the phrase, he wrote how the Irish became white, etc. And the the guiding light of this journal was uh, treason to whiteness is loyalty to humanity. And the premise was that to really create justice and equity in the world, we had to actively we had to use our white privilege to actively deconstruct white privilege. So it wasn't good enough to just say racism sucks. It's understanding what advantages you have in every scenario and then using those advantages to turn scenarios inside out and give advantage to people who have been denied it in the past. All these ideas just clicked like instantaneously for me when when I met the band race trader i'd already known some of them before because they'd been in prior hardcore bands um and they'd been around the chicago scene when birthright would travel up there etc and i don't know i think i think race trader really was a meeting point for us because you were getting to be friends with them at the same time i was getting to be friends with them at the same time that you and i were starting to become friends yeah. So it all just sort of worked in tandem, and that's, I guess that that was the squad for uh, a year, two years. I, my sense of time back then is so, my sense of of what time was back then is so skewed now that I can't. To me, it feels like a decade. Like I was going up to Chicago twice a month for years and years and years, but it could have been six months for all I know. But there was just a lot of travel and hanging out and not even traveling for shows, just like going to stay with the Mistofis or stay with Dan Benai or uh, for them to come down and, and stay at our house on college and talk about this stuff, you know, talk about philosophy yeah. and talk about music and talk about, you know, what we were trying to accomplish in the world. And I, I loved at some point, uh, Benai, who's the guitar player in race trader at the time, 
um, and now I believe works as a counselor or therapist. He said when people asked him like what he wanted to do, he was still in college, I think at the time at DePaul, and uh, he would just say, change the world. Because <laughs> he was like, anything less is wasting your time. You know, like if that's not the ultimate goal and, you know, it was, it was young and dumb and, and, you know, comic, comically idealistic, but I still think there's truth to it. Like if you're, if you're not trying to really put a dent in something, then you could go take a nap, I guess. <laughs> you know, one, one thing that I found interesting about race trader, maybe even after the fact, maybe not so much as when we were in the midst of it was that while, you know, their band name and their entire platform was that they were rejecting their own whiteness and, uh, you know, inviting their audience oftentimes very confrontationally to do the same, you know, their, their idea was that the punk and hardcore scene by the time they came around had lapsed into its own you know, social hierarchies and apathy and every other problem that plagues the larger society. And they sort of operated from within that bubble. And it was confrontational enough that they were on the cover of Maximum Rock and Roll and Heart Attack, which were arguably the two most important influential fanzines of the day, uh, neither of whom really did cover stories on bands. Uh, yeah. And both of them were on the cover prior to having even released a single note of music. And of course, uh, there was, <laughs> I forgot that that element of it. Yeah. And there was also always the, you know, apt criticism that they did a lot more talking than they did playing music. I mean, uh, to a to a point that it was uh, almost it would be considered trolling today. Yeah. And that was the, that was the brilliant thing, because the songs were like 45 seconds long. But yeah. Money and Benai would talk for three to five minutes. And yeah. sometimes the arguments with the crowd would derail the whole show, which I guess once music becomes once aggressive music becomes so commonplace that that there's an entire scene that exists to cultivate it and support it one way to one way to uh turn things on their head is to just not play like we're going to we're going to set yeah. up as a band and fuck you, we're just going to talk and yell at you and not even give you the thing you, you came for. And it was also, there was a democratization that happened. You know, part of the beauty of punk and hardcore in its essence is that there's very little, if any, separation between the band and audience. Uh, it could be on one end of the spectrum where it's just the mere idea that they're playing a more accessible type of music and you could jump up there without having a flashy rock star get up or great technical skills and do the same thing they are all the way to the race trainer end of the spectrum where it's like we're going to play in front of the stage and play on the floor and when someone starts heckling us we're going to engage with the heckler and that's going to turn into a discussion and next thing you know everyone's sitting down indian style uh, you know or <laughs> having a combo or they're uh you know we we call that crisscross i, was just, I now. was just about to say uh yeah i <laughs> I mean, like, I, I don't know that that to me is that that's exactly the thing. Like so much, so much stuff is embedded in our language and our our assumptions and just the, the little shit that we say that's that's demeaning or dismissive or whatever of anything that's not like us is so hard to reprogram out, you know, so it 
those things do matter, I guess. You know, like, yeah, we, we both you and I definitely think that people who agree with us are sometimes the most annoying people in the world. But that doesn't mean that <laughs> that we're wrong, you know? Yeah. And there's a whole other argument to be made about, you know, what what types of activism are most effective and what things we find ourselves doing that are more performative and quote unquote virtue signaling versus things that are that actually have an impact. You know, one broader example would be the insistence on force forcing in the phrase Native American or indigenous people and then having an actual Indian person tell you, no, just call us American Indians. That's what we call ourselves. It's too late. Like no take backs, you know, on, on down the line, right. Of the, uh, you know, the folks who feel that uh, scolding someone on Twitter is their activism for the day. But um, getting back on topic with the band race trader for a minute. One of the things that I found interesting, you know, when I, when I first saw them and first met them, I almost immediately made a phone call to Sean Mutaki of the band Vegan Reich, who we'll be discussing in a later episode, uh, who ran a record label. And I said, I just found the new Vegan Reich. <laughs> and that <laughs> I, I never made that connection in my head, but that is, that's, uh, that's very, apt. that's very apt. Yeah. This idea of introducing, introducing these radical ideas into a scene that positions itself and sees itself as radical, that it is in fact in many ways quite conservative and the ensuing chaos and hilarity that, <laughs> that happens when truly radical ideas are, you know, more or less forced upon the audience. And it was a very vegan Reich esque thing that race trader was doing, you know, 10 years after the fact. And given that Sean ran a record label, which at the time was putting out everything from reggae to hip hop to uh, eventually the <laughs> a few years later, the first fallout boy album. Um, <laughs> you know, I connected them together and then friendships developed and so on. And he ended up releasing that first race trader full length on his label. But uh, the, th the thing that I keep that I, that I initially started wanting to say and keep getting away from is one thing that's interesting is in this whole concept that the band had of, um, disavowing their own whiteness with that name race trader is that for throughout the duration of the band, um, the entire time the band was around, unless I'm mistaken, you know, money Mustofi was always the vocalist and Dan and I was always playing guitar while the rest of the lineup, uh, changed here and there. And both of them are children of Persian immigrants, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Uh, money, both his, his, his mother and father and, you know, uh, Dan on his dad's side. And I mean, their parents were, were, you know, first generation immigrants, like, you know. Yeah. I think they came over in 79 after the Shah was deposed. In, indeed. And then, you know, at various points, uh, our buddy Pete Wentz was in and out of the band race trader and he's half black. Um, so it was inter always interesting to me, an interesting component. And I think part of what they were getting at that made it, uh, you know, a head scratcher to some without even that much more fascinating on, on whatever level is that they were, they were sort of commenting on how they themselves could pass as white for all intents and purposes. You know, when, uh, uh this was pre nine 11, I should, I should note, you know, when, Dan Benai is getting pulled over. He's going to, he's still going to have a different experience than 
a person of color, despite the fact that he's not uh, what many white people would consider to be white. You know, he's still benefiting from whiteness and white privilege in a lot of ways. Uh, so, you know, that was always kind of a fascinating, I guess, detail that was, you know, woven into the, the tapestry of everything that race trader stood for and represented. And of course there's, you know, valid criticisms that can be made about the way they approach things or how their own ideology evolved and the, the various movements and things they were associated with and influenced by. But by and large, I think they were one of the more exciting things to happen, certainly in the Midwest, uh, without a doubt. And, you know, very challenging and thought provoking. And, and, uh, again, me always, you know, always having the attraction to the contrarians. I loved that. That was our, our click and our crew for a period of a few years where we were rabble rousing amongst the rabble rousers. I can't remember how I felt about it in real time. There probably was a little more snark than I would express now, but one of the things I, I love now looking back on on that era is how how complicated race trader was in their own lives as it related to their ideology and the positions that they would stake out because it to me it underscores how messy and complicated white supremacy is that everyone is implicit and everyone is complicit in some way, you know, how the son of Persian immigrants who grew up in one of the richest suburbs in America could be benefiting from white supremacy is a really complicated conversation to have. And that's why shows would come to a complete standstill when he would be screaming at people because they would have legitimate answers to his questions and he was he was there for it as we say now you know like he was there to have big messy complicated conversations where no one came out clean and i think that's that to me is is the is the legacy of that period of my life it's learning how to be comfortable with not being clean like there's there's no perfect veganism there's no there's no blameless saintly white person like none of us come out okay the goal is to do more good than harm and if that's what we're doing we have to be okay with that and if other people aren't okay with that we have to be okay with that too you know no matter how no matter how much i think i get it and and how much work i think i'm doing in my personal and professional life to deconstruct race or to to use my privilege to help other people, there will still be people who who do not want me in their space, who think I'm overstepping by talking about it, who think that our roles should be reversed. Like the guy I talked to on Marta, you know, the the Hebrew Israelite who explained to me how I was going to be enslaved uh, in the coming years and yada 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 and. But at the same time, he thought it was funny that I was having a serious conversation with him about it because I knew his shtick and I'd been through it all before. I knew what he was going to say. I knew all the, you know, conspiracy theories, the, the young earth shit, all that stuff. And it was, I wasn't bothered by it because like, it's not, it's not about me, you know? 
it's kind of like when I'm when I'm in a hurry at the airport and uh, I see a devotee uh, rushing <laughs> rushing towards me with a stack of books and I just put up my hand and I say, "Hari Bol Prabhu." And I keep walking and it, and it every, every time there's like a visible, like, Oh, okay. You know, like it, 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 it it's effective. Like it, it, it's not insulting. It's just kind of a like, yeah, 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 I know. And I'm in a hurry and you know, you're not going to be telling me much yeah. that I haven't heard. I mean, I guess people still, still talk about so-called white guilt and it's something that gets thrown around anytime, anytime white people try to have a good faith conversation about, racial inequality and injustice some white dude is going to talk about white guilt and this the civil rights movement already happened uh, why isn't there a white history month and i don't why do i should feel guilty about why what my it, ancestors did why isn't there white entertainment television yeah um and and the thing that i i was able to articulate finally was that like I don't, I don't feel any guilt at all. Like experiencing guilt over something that someone else did a hundred, 200, 500 years before I was born. Like, no, that's idiotic. I, I have no, I feel no guilt for uh, even shame for that because it wasn't me. What I do feel is a sense of responsibility because I have been a beneficiary of the shitty thing that other person did. So, that's that's the thing that I try to if I can do nothing but help other white people come to that understanding that like like no you, like you don't have to get caught up in like feeling bad like yeah you should feel bad because shitty things happened and that sucks like feel sad about it and process that but once you once you feel your feels come to the understanding that as the beneficiary of institutionalized racism of redlining of mass incarceration of black bodies of the the corporate labor system that grew out of the cotton fields and became amazon like grapple with that and think about how you're complicit and then what you can do to overturn it you know like you know, we'll talk about, you know, civil disobedience in a future episode, but like, I know that I'll be treated better by police than a man with dark skin. So if I'm at a protest or if I'm encountering police, I should put my body in front of that black person's body because I stand a lower chance of being harmed. That's how you can use privilege. You can use privilege in other, I mean, when I was working in a corporate job, there was a lot of mansplaining and a lot of talking over women. So what I did and I talked with them about it was I would repeat the things that they said while giving them credit. And then when other people would do the same thing, when other people would like steal an idea or, or try to co-op something, I would say, yes, that was what so-and-so was saying, or yes, she had a point when she brought that up and it was just a, a, a subtle, consistent way of letting people in the room know what they were doing, whether they realized it or not. So being conscious of what we're doing, how we're being perceived, how our presence of how we take up space, you know, like when I enter a room, 
I should be aware of the space that I take up and how that affects other people, how other people view me. And I really, I had a really fascinating conversation a couple of years ago with a woman I worked with. She was one of only two women of color who worked in the office. First time I interact with, interacted with her, I called her by name and I asked her a question. And she asked me if, if I was sure I was talking to the right person and maybe I needed the other black woman. <laughs> and I said, no, I, I know, I know who you are and I know that you're the person I need to talk to about this. And it was a little stilted and standoffish. Um, and then several months later I was getting coffee and I was talking to her and I, I asked her a question. Um, I asked her a question about her name because I knew that it was, of a certain national origin that was not American. And she was sort of taken aback. Number one, that I knew and number two, that I cared enough to ask. And that quickly turned into a conversation about who she thought I was the first time she encountered me. And it was crazy because uh, probably 38 at that point. And it was really the first time anyone had ever said, here's what I thought about you when you showed up. Mm. Like here are the, here's, the stereotype that you filled out in my head and what I expected from you and the, and how that affected, you know, my interactions with you. And it, it boiled down to, she thought I was, you know, a basic white dude in a logo shirt with a beard. She thought I was, she, I mean, she thought I was just a beard bro, you know, like the guy that's Mayonnaise. not, yeah, yeah. The guy that's into like marginally cool stuff, but you know, really isn't, cool you know it's just the same shit warmed over with you know a different sauce sprinkled on top um and it was really great we 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 got to be i guess good work friends legit friends as a result of that because we would have really frank discussions about race and race in the workplace and you know race in general and she could say hard things to me and I could listen because <laughs> that's really what I should be doing. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, that's that's how I got to where I am. And where I go next, I'm not sure. There are some things I'm hoping to do in my current job relating to, I guess, racial justice in rural America. There's a lot of things I'm learning about that hopefully I can have some some small impact in those areas. The more I learn and the more people I, I encounter and the more people I can help. So it's a lot out there. There's a lot of work to do. So find, find something with, that's within arm's reach and do something.